God is Love by J. Preston Eby, narrated by Gary Emerald. This is a booklet, part eight, in the Savior of the World series. God is Love. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4.10 and uh, 2 verse 2. To us, it is almost a commonplace, but to the times in which it was first spoken, and to the people who first heard the words, it was the most astounding, the most startling revelation that had fallen upon human ears. In a way, I wish that somehow we might be plunged back into that heathen era so that we ourselves might hear those words for the very first time. Those words which we take so much for granted that their meaning, for the most part, has eluded us entirely. That we might hear them in their pristine freshness when first they fell upon this earth. God is love. It is helpful to understand how men viewed their God in the way in which they conceived of Him who created them. With that, we could go back to the ancient days in India or China or Japan and see the hideous idols with their grimacing countenances, their devouring teeth, their many arms, their sharp claws, something of the devouring, hateful nature of the deities, or go back to the cruel Assyrians or Babylonians or Egyptians and the monstrosities, the tyrannies which they worshipped as gods. If you will examine the ancient pagan literature, you will find the concept of a loving God was alien to people. We take that so much for granted. Why, of course God loves us. I want you to know that until Jesus came, people did not know that. They knew God according to superstition, after the law perhaps. They knew that God was angry with people. God punished people. God woke up and threw thunderbolts at people. But that God loved them? God would accept their sacrifices. God would even put up with him, and they would propitiate him and appease him, or so they thought. But they did not love God. But now our relationship with God is one of a father infinitely loving a son. You can see this, for example, in one of the famous Confucius, Confucian stories that our missionaries discovered when they got to China. It is a story about a young man of a wealthy father who one day stole a large portion of his father's wealth and ran away from home. He took that money and wasted it on riotous living. The years passed, and finally it was all gone, and he became destitute. Finally, through an intermediary, he appeased to his fa- appealed to his father to take him back again. With open arms, his father accepted him back into the home and prepared for him a great feast. Does that sound familiar? As they sat feasting together, all eyes were fixed upon the son. There was a big smile beaming on the face of the father, which broadened as a look of horror suddenly spread across the countenance of the son. He grasped at his throat, finally realizing too late that he had been poisoned. And Confucius says... So shall it be with every son that dishonoreth his father. End quote. 
How infinite is the gap between that and the story Jesus told of the prodigal son? Jesus came to reveal the Father's love. The Greeks had a little different concept. They viewed God in terms of beauty or truth as revealed in their architecture or sculpture or their philosophy. The Romans, who were led in a thousand battles by their Caesars, had become convinced that the Roman eagle never turned backwards. They conceived of their God in terms of might and strength. God was might. Even the Jews, as they looked back to the time of Moses when God descended upon uh, Sinai and caused the mountain to quake and pour out upon them his law, conceived of God basically as the great lawgiver and judge. It waited for the Apostle John, that one who had leaned his head upon the breast of Jesus, that one who had stood before the cross to drop those words which no man had ever dared to dream before. These words were the most startling revelation when they were first spoken. God is love. We all know that, you say. Do we indeed? It is my deep conviction that for most of us, the words are so trite that we haven't the faintest concept of what they mean, nor have they ever begun to grasp our hearts as they should. Since it is an everlasting truth that men become like the God they worship, so this revelation, the unveiling of the face of the Father in heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, has done more to soften and conquer the hearts of mankind than anything that man has ever discovered. It has brought more love, more genuine progress to civilization than anything else. Without it, we might still be as the Assyrians who worshipped the cruel and merciless gods, and therefore when they descended upon their foes, they placed thousands of sharpened stakes in the ground, picked up their adversaries, and left them impaled to die in agonizing death. Those they did not impale, they flayed alive, and covered the walls of their captured towns with the skins of their victims, because that was the kind of god they worshipped. But have we really made that much progress? The same beloved John, who wrote so extensively of God's marvelous love, left us this solemn warning. Little children, keep yourself from idols, that is, false gods or false ideas and false representations of the true God. 1 John 5.21 Do we have false ideas about God? I fear we do. We say that God is all-wise, all-knowing, and all-powerful, and then turn around and deny it. We say that God so loved the world and that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and then turn around and say that only a few will be saved, while God sends the vast majority to suffer the excruciating pains of fire and brimstone for all eternity, without his feeling any concern for their suffering, without mercy. We say that God is all-powerful, and then turn around and say that God has provided salvation for all men. That is, God is trying to save the world, that God is pleading with men to repent. But the devil who blinds and possesses men's souls is so much more powerful than God that he will carry captive into eternal hell countless billions of men for whom Christ died. Also, folks who claim they are true to the Bible say that God the Creator and God the Redeemer are the very same God, but they deny it in their attitude toward the question of the salvation of all men. 
As Dr. Hurley has written, quote, They have an infinite creator, but a very little redeemer. Their Christ is his comparatively helpless and puny Savior who is going to lose most of those for whom he died. He can pay the price for the sins of the whole world, but the stubborn will of man makes it ineffective. Man's will is mightier than God's will. God is infinite to create, powerless to redeem. But either God is all-powerful, or he is not. Either God is all-wise, or he is not. Either God is all-loving, or he is not. Either God's will is sovereign, or it is not. Either God's grace is infinite, or it is not. Isn't it time for the Church of Christ to decide one way or the other, and then make her theology fit her expressed faith? End quote. Little children, keep yourself from false ideas of God. False ideas about God. How the world and the Church are filled with them. Many view God as a schoolboy did, quote, the sort of person who would always snoop around to see if someone is enjoying himself and then try to stop it, end quote. Then others make God out to be a tyrant or a vengeful, wrathful fiend. The Riverside Daily Press had an Associated Press report from San Francisco as follows, quote, a father's curse was the legacy made by Dennis Donahue III age 54, member of a well-known family here, to his two daughters by a former wife in a will filed for, rep- for probate in Superior Court. And here's what it said, quote, And to my daughters, Frances Marie and Denise Victoria Donahue, he wrote in his own hand, quote, By virtue of their unfilial attitude toward a doting father, and because they have repeatedly thwarted my efforts to see them, I leave the sum of one dollar to each and a father's curse. May their respective lives be fraught with misery, unhappiness, and poignant sorrow. May their deaths be soon and of a lingering, malign, and torturous nature. May their souls rest in hell and suffer the torments of the damned for eternity. End quote. I am sure that my readers agree with me that such an attitude is not that of a true father. It is only that of a fiend. But what may not be clear to all is that in this respect, he is a perfect example of the God of popular theology. Because his children are unfilial, he consigns them to the torment of hellfire forever. We loathe such a character when we see it in a mere mortal, but justify it as the character of a God who is love. But the Bible knows of no such God. No more terrible insult was ever given to the God of all grace who came in Jesus Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. This story is told about a little girl. After she had heard her father preach a sermon on the awful wrath of God, and that the unsaved would go to a red-hot, sizzling, burning hell the moment they died, and that they would twist in agony and torment forever, without mercy, this little girl said, I wish Jesus were as good and kind as my Father. God does bring judgment upon sinners, swift, strong, effective, corrective judgment, but never meaningless, sadistic torture. Do you know what God wants more than anything else? Quote, 
For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. His mercy runs so deep that he sent Jesus as the Redeemer of the race and has mapped out a beautiful and comprehensive plan of the ages in which to reconcile all things unto himself. He has revealed that his tender mercies are over all his works, that he hates nothing that he has made, and that it was all made for his pleasure, that he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil, and that he has provided a way that even the banished may return to him, self-banished as though they may be by sin. This unquenchable and eternal love of God our Father for all his creation is the great center of all of Christ's teachings. He said, For God so loved the world. He said, I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you. He is not pleading with the Father to love us, or any man in the world, for he came from that Father with the gospel, with the glad tidings of the Father's love, that he so loved the world that he sent his Son into it, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What compassion, what wisdom, what love, what God! He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. 1 John 4, 8 and 16. Charles H. Pridgen wrote, quote, When Edgerton Younger, Young, a successful missionary in northwestern British America, taught some of the Indians to read by the symbol syllabic characters. He wrote on the rock for them to read the words, God is love. One old Indian chief looked and pronounced the characters, and as soon as he uttered them, he caught their import. He arose to his great height and said, rubbing his eyes, quote, Has there been sand in my eyes all these years? I have seen the Spirit in the lightning. I have heard him in the thunder. But I never knew until now that God is love. End quote. How many have really learned this truth? You see, the old Indian chief knew something of the attributes and the greatness of God, but he had never known what God is. Would that my tongue were eloquent enough to explain it, or that my mind were great enough to comprehend it, but neither is sufficient. I would ask you to join me as we ascend into the great wealth of the glittering mind of God's attributes. As we look into this mind, we find that it is scattered everywhere with precious jewels of the attributes of God that glitter and scintillate in the light that comes in behind us. Pick up one and examine it, and perhaps you shall see something more of the greatness of God. Pick up the jewel of God's power and look at that. As you look into that gem, you see omnipotence beyond comprehension. God speaks, and the universe leaps out of nothing into existence. God thinks, and vast myriads of beings spring into their being, singing His praises. By a thought He creates. By a thought, he could think them into nothingness. 
and they would disappear as the foam on the ocean waves sink back into the sea as if it had never existed at all. Our mightiest telescopes through which our astronomers gaze cannot begin to pierce the length and breadth of this universe which God in his omnipotent power has created. We cannot in our finite minds begin to comprehend the power of him who can create the Milky Way or even the solar system we know. And yet as limitless and infinite as the power and omnipotence of God is, even so limitless is his love. It is without measure and without boundary. It is absolutely illimitable. You might as well try to drink up the ocean until it is dry as to ever exhaust the infinite love of God who sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Consider God's wisdom. Pick up that jewel and gaze into its many glittering facets and you will behold something that will benumb your mind. God who knows all things that ever were, are, or ever shall be is a God whose omniscience enables him to comprehend not only what is, was, or shall be, but even contingent things which might have been under all possible circumstances. There is nothing that escapes his mind. We are told that there are birds that fly high in the sky who have not only microscopic but telescopic vision, and yet they are groping blind compared to the eye of God who sees all things, who sees the flashing neurons of your brain as the thoughts flash through your mind, who knows everything about you. And yet as vast and incomprehensible as the wisdom and omniscience of God is, even so vast and incomprehensible is his love through which he reconciles us to God. When we speak of God's infinite attributes, we might say, and many do, that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This is a very beautiful definition, but it largely defines only God's attributes, whereas the text says, God is love. It tells us what he himself is. This text reveals his nature, his state of being. For example, in speaking of justice, we know that God has justice as one of his attributes, but he is not justice. God is love. This fact gives us a revelation of God's very nature. This brings us face to face with the great central message of the Bible, which is a message of love. We need to remember that the personage of whom the Bible is written is love, a being whose very nature is love. In our day, this is something that can become distorted because we live in an age of distortion. We live in a time when even the truth of anything, whether it be the nature of God or the nature of human sexuality, is distorted and perverted. The fact that God is love is perverted into some sort of mush-mash that God is a wishy-washy old grandfather who would never punish his grandchildren lest he stop, they stop coming to visit him. We have met some brethren in this end-time move of the Spirit who have exaggerated the bright side of the love of God out of all proportion to its other aspects. The love of God has been presented in such a way that it is a weakness rather than a strength. It has been presented on the sunny side of the street with nothing on the other side ever mentioned. 
There is a love of God preached that sounds to me like the doting indulgence of rather senile grandparents instead of a vital, vigorous concern of a father for the best interests of a son. They have used the old shop-worn cliché, God is love, God is love, God is love, until love has become such a one-sided, mushy-gooey, syrupy, sweet thing, and that they have not, but they have not told the dark side of the love of God. Quote, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son he receiveth. Hebrews 12.6 They have watered love down, making it sickening rather than stimulating, causing it to slop over on every side like a sentimental feeling rather than an abiding concern for the object of love. Some have no concern at all. They are settled into a drowsy complacency, into a do-nothing, don't-care dispensation for, they say, everything will turn out all right in the end anyway. They have no passion for lost souls anymore. They have thrown judgment and hell out the window and would not lift a finger to warn any man to flee from the wrath to come. Sometimes where we would endeavor to teach the whole truth of God, we might lean so far to the other side of the boat to balance it that again the truth might be lost. The balance of the love of God was summed up by the sweet singer of Israel thus, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 85.10 In the conception of God that we have found and created in our own minds, if anything other than love is paramount, we have a distortion and an idol of the mind. If we have a concept wherein the justice of God becomes greater than his love, a concept where the omnipotence of God overrules his love, where the sovereignty of God outshines his love, and the omniscience of God puts his love into the shadows, then we have a false concept of God. For we have been told by one who knows that God is love. That does not mean that he is not just, righteous, sovereign, and wise. But all these are rooted in the fact that he is preeminently the loving creator and the redeemer of this world. A famous preacher of yesteryear related the following story. Quote, I was visiting one day with a religiously divided family. The wife was a devout Christian, the husband a hard, ranker unbeliever. He was hardly courteous to me. Why should he be? As a minister of the Word of God, I was in his eyes little better than a fool. When the evening paper came, he grasped it eagerly as a fortunate escape from what he considered a boring conversation. I had been talking with his wife about the marvelous love of God. Suddenly he threw the paper in front of me. Look, he shouted, pointing to the headlines, thousands slaughtered in big push. How can you say that God is love? Nonsense! If he were alive and loving as you say, would he not stop this? His question was put very sharply, but it was not new. It was as old as the race. End quote. Any thinking mind will be quick to consent that the problem in the world today is not with God, it's with man. The vast majority of the pain, sorrow, suffering, cruelty, heartache, war, bloodshed, and despair in the world today really reveals nothing at all about the nature of God. It merely points out the barbarity, selfishness, ruthlessness, brutishness, and savageness of man. 
It is man who wars, lies, exploits, divorces, deserts, deceives, cheats, ignores, intimidates, does drugs, steals, murders, and breaks the hearts and destroys the lives of those about him. Not God. Why should men doubt the love of God? How dare they place a question mark after his benevolence? What reasoning has brought them to this fearful interrogation? Betimes their doubts have risen because they have listened to the ambiguous oracles of nature rather than the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. Nature impresses men with the awful mystery, power, and wisdom of God. The story with its jagged lightnings and rolling thunders, the proud mountains with their dizzy heights mantled in snow, the heaving bosom of the ocean with its foam-crested waves, yes, and in the tiny violet on the hillside, these eloquently proclaim a God of infinite power, wisdom, and riches. But they do not convince the unconverted heart of God's infinite love. The forces of nature that sometimes work for our good often turn about and seem to work for our ruin and destruction. The sunlight that warms our fields to produce the golden harvests also beat down unmercifully upon the earth and produce a dust bowl making thousands homeless and hungry. The warm rains that help to germinate the seed that has been sown sometimes come in ruinous abundance, producing floods in whose wake are destruction, disease, despair, and death. How apparently contradictory. Possibly in the midst of some tragedy, you, too, are asking the question, Is God loving? Why does God permit war, you ask? If he is a loving God, why does he permit the roar of bombers and the barking of guns to silence the joyous laughter of innocent children? If God is a God of love, yes, why does he not stop it? We do not have the answer to many of the dark questions of life, for our vision is so limited, and unlike God, we cannot see the end from the beginning. Ah, if only we could see the end, God's glorious end, then we would understand all the whys and wherefores and how even all of these things work together for our good. We do not have the answers to many of the dark questions of life because we cannot fully understand the wonderful interplay of God's justice, chastisement, and mercy. We only know that man has sinned. The whole planet is in rebellion. Mankind continually rejects the ways of the Lord and spurs the love of God, and sin takes its awful toll, and all of nature is thrown into chaos in the process. The ambiguous testimony of nature alone cannot supply you with an adequate answer. Only those elect saints who are spiritually enlightened can discern the love of God, even in the adverse and fearful demonstrations of nature, and in the terrible judgment that stalks through the earth. Let us turn from these oracles with their double answers and turn to living demonstration of the loving nature of God, a demonstration that all the ages have not been able to contradict, namely, namely the great fact of the Incarnation, the deathless, eternally glorious fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16
From childhood, most of us have heard these blessed words, yet they are so freighted with heaven's riches that one instinctively shrinks from talking about them. Who presumes to be able to measure the magnitude of God's love? God so loved the world. Charles Spurgeon once struck off a bold figure when he exclaimed, Come, ye surveyors, bring your chains, and try to make a survey of this word, so. Nay, that is not enough. Come hither, ye that make our national surveys, and lay down charts for all nations. Come ye, who map the seas and land, and make a chart of this word, so. Nay, I must go further. Come hither, ye astronomers, that with your optic glasses spy out spaces before which your imagination staggers. Come hither and calculate imaginations worthy of your powers. When you have measured between the horns of space, here is a task that will defy you. God so loved the world. Although we may completely despair of calculating the love of God, there are nevertheless in these classic words of Jesus some very clear statements that help us compute to some extent the greatness of the heart of God. This little word, so, finds its definition, I think, in the object of the gift of God's love. God loved the world, the world that then was and now is, the world rebellious against God, morally depraved, lost in degradation and shame. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. You see, it was while we were dead in trespasses and sins, while we made no response to God, while friendship with Him was cut off, and the urge of faithfulness and goodness lay smoldering in the grave of our depravity. It was then that the love of God's great heart embraced us. God so loved the world. That means his love sweeps around the whole earth and flows out to men of every nation, tongue, every race. But it means more. It means he loves the men and women of the world who by their own evil nature have wretched themselves away from him. It means that he loves the blaspheming atheist, the scornful skeptic, the lecherous outcast, the criminal behind the bars, the grafter who swaggers about as a good citizen, and the unscrupulous leeches who drain the very lifeblood of widows and orphans. God so loved the world, all of it, and he loves it still. He loves the men living now upon the earth, and He loves those who have died and lived in dim and distant ages past. He loves them on earth, and He loves them in hell. God so loved. Herein is manifest the love of God. He loves the unlovely and unloving and the humanly unlovable. Let holy and powerful angels from the extended galleries of heaven sing it. Let the redeemed in rapturous wonder take up the song, and let singers fall prostrate in penitence before the Almighty Creator and Redeemer. God is love. Do you believe it? 
The judgments of God can never be rightly understood apart from his nature of love. If God's judgments spring not from his love, then they come not from God at all, for he is love. What ought this to teach us about his judgments? The pen of inspiration wrote, quote, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receives. For our profit, that is, that we may partake of his holiness. Hebrews 12, 5 through 10. God doesn't go around purposelessly punishing or vindictively torturing any of his creatures. But he does go about precise paths of bringing forth correction unto righteousness, as the prophet says. When thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Isaiah 26, 9. God's judgments, whether upon saints, nations, or the wicked in general, are all corrective in nature, accomplished by the motivation of his nature, which is love. Quote, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. Beloved, God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4:10-12. Can any words make it plainer that God's love in Christ is given to pass into us and to become our life? We shall then love God as he loved us. We shall then love one another as Christ has loved us. And we shall then love the world with the same love which God in Christ revealed upon the cross. Some who read these lines may be bruised and battered by life. Some of you may be lonely and cast down. Some of you may feel all alone. If you're a father or mother, then you know something of the love of a parent for a child. You know something of a love that reaches out after a child, even in its waywardness. A love that reaches out to a child that has been hurt. A love that reaches after a child who has deserted its family. A love that never lets go. All of that tender passion of a parent's uh, love is but the faintest shadow of the infinite love of God which knows no limit. A love that indeed could never let us or any man go. When we become children of God, we enter into that parental love of God. How sad that so many who call themselves children of God are, as the Apostle warned, without natural affection, stubbornly willing to consign the vast majority of God's wayward sons to everlasting damnation, yea, demanding as judge and jury that they be damned, rather than loving them infinitely and omnipotently as God loves them. While reflecting upon the parental love of God, a story came to mind that I read some months ago. In this story, a man who was entirely careless of spiritual things died and went to hell. And he was missed much on earth by his old friends. His business manager went down to the gates of hell to see if there was any chance of bringing him up. But though he pleaded for the gates to be opened, the iron bars never yielded. His cricket manager went also and besought Satan to let him out just for the remainder of the season. But there was no response. 
His minister went also and argued, saying, He was not altogether bad. Let him have another chance. Let him out just this once. Many other friends of his went also and pleaded with Satan, saying, Let him go, let him go, let him go. But when his mother came, she spoke no word of her release. Quietly and with a strange catch in her voice, she said to Satan, Let me in. And immediately the great doors swung open upon their hinges. For love goes down through the gates of hell and there redeems the damned. Our Father and God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ holds in his nail-pierced hands the keys of death and hell. O grave, where is thy victory? O gates of hell, thou shalt not prevail. For the Redeemer of Israel and the Savior of the world, the God who is love, holds in his triumphant hand thy key. The Power of God's Love It is my deep conviction that this opening of divine love will melt more hearts for God than any other exercise. A mother may forget her child, but the word says, For God so loved the world that he gave his son. John 3.16 How can God ever forget the world, or give up on the world with a love so fierce as that? The scripture declares, quote, But God commandeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 And again, in this the love of God was made manifest, where we are concerned in that God sent his Son, the only begotten or unique Son, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 9, 10, and 2, 2, in the Amplified Version. J. A. Dowie relates the following story. I remember how touched I was to look upon a grave once which had only these words. My brother... He loved me and gave himself instead of me. I turned to a person and said, Tell me the story of that grave. He told me that it was erected by a man in memory of his brother who was killed in war. The man was drafted as a conscript, and when his younger brother, who had no wife or family, heard of it, he went to him and said, John, you have a dear wife and a nice family, and I have none. Let me take your name and go for you. So he went under the name of his brother John and was killed in the battle. John went down to the battlefield and brought the body home and buried it. He erected a tombstone in which were only these words, My brother, he loved me and gave himself instead of me. End quote. Christ loved us and gave himself instead of us. He died for us when we were not like that man's brother. We were not good. We were not worthy. The whole race is wicked and vile and hostile. When we were yet ungodly, the Word of God became the Son of Man and died for us. So let us love Him and all mankind whom He loved and for whom He died. The story has been told of John B. Goh. The great temperance orator was entertained by some friends in an eastern city. The mother of the household called him aside and asked him to go to her son, Edward, and have a talk with him. 
She said that Edward had been a wayward son, in fact had gone so far in disgracing them that the father forbade him to enter the house. She said that she had pleaded with the father and had prevailed, and that the father had consented to permit Edward to have a room where he would never have to see him. She said, Mr. Go, Edward came home intoxicated a couple of days ago and is still in his room. I have been caring for him. Will you not go and have a little chat with him? Mr. Go said, My dear mother, if you, with all your love and patience, cannot do anything with him, I scarcely think that I can. With a mother's persistency, she finally persuaded Mr. Go to talk with her son. He knocked at the door and entered, finding Edward. Mr. Go said, Edward, aren't you tired of the kind of life that you're leading? Edward said, Yes, Mr. Go, I am sick and tired of it. Then why do you not quit? Quit it. I can't, Mr. Go. I am bound hand and foot with an evil habit. Then why do you not pray, Edward? Pray? I don't believe in prayer. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything. Oh, yes, you do, Edward, replied Mr. Go. You believe in something. You believe that your mother loves you. Edward replied, I do not believe anything about it. I know she loves me. Then Edward continued, Mr. Go, You believe that there is such a good thing in this world as love, and I am going to leave you here, and I want you to promise me that after I go out, you will get down on your knees and pray to love. Pray to what? said Edward. Pray to love, for that is the only thing that you said you believe in. After much persuasion, Edward promised. He afterwards said that he felt so foolish when he knelt down to pray to love. But he had promised, and he tried to fulfill his promise. He kneeled and cried, Oh, love, love, help me. And straightforward as if through the cleft of heaven, this text sounded as a voice in his heart, God is love. And still looking up, he said, O God, and there came to him the verse that he had learned years before, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he cried, O Christ! And it was done. He rushed out of his room to his mother, and when he did, he threw his arms around her neck and said, Mother, I have found the Christ. Our poor, lisping, faltering tongues cannot proclaim the gospel as we would like. But we have God's word that is true for the present time, and for all the times of all the ages. God is love, is unchangeable, is eternal. God is love in heaven, in earth, in hell, is everywhere. And the great practical consequence is for you and to me to respond to that love and to God, to become filled with that love, one with that love, the embodiment and manifestation of that love to all men in all realms. The best and most wonderful word in the universe is love, for God is love. And the best and the most wonderful word in the inner chamber of our heart must be love, for the God who meets us there is love. What is love? the deep desire to give itself for the beloved. Love finds its joy in imparting all that it has to make the loved one happy and fulfilled. And the Heavenly Father, who who offers to meet us in the inner chamber, let there be no doubt about this in our minds, 
has no other object than to flood our hearts with his love. But the spirit of love is not in you until it is the spirit of your life, till you live freely, willingly, and universally according to it. It makes no difference of time, place, or person, but whether it gives or forgives, bears or forgives, forbears, it is equally doing its own delightful work. The spirit of love does not want to be rewarded or honored. It only desires to become the blessing and happiness of everything that it needs. The wrath of an enemy, the treachery of a friend, only gives the spirit of love an opportunity to become triumphant. The rebellion of Adam but opened up avenues for mankind to experience and know the incredible depths of the love of God. God is love, and his sons are of his own nature, the sons of love. What a blessed title! Little wonder, then, that the whole vast creation stood under slavery and bondage to sin and sorrow and death and groans for the manifestation of the sons of love. To know this is a wonderful help to faith. It teaches us that to love God or the brethren or our enemies or the whole wretched race of men is not a self-effort thing. We can only do it because the divine love is dwelling in us. Only as far as we yield ourselves to the divine love as a living power within, as a life that has been born into us, and that the Holy Spirit strengthens into action. Our part is first of all to rest, to cease from effort, to know that He is in us, and to give way to the love that dwells and works in us in a power that is from above. The love of God reigns. The Spirit of God still waits to take possession of hearts where He has hitherto no room. Love is timeless, eternal. God so loved. He loves still. Though 160 billions of men have lived and died and gone to Christless graves, He loves them still. Oh, my dear friend, can you believe that? His mercy endureth forever, throughout all ages and love will conquer, praise his name. Hence it is that God, wanting to show us what love was, sent one who from the beginning was sinless, who was conceived with the, without the aid of lust, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit of infinite love, and into whose being there entered no evil passion, since the virgin was sanctified in her spirit, soul, and her body so that the holy thing that was born in her was the incarnation of love in every part of his spirit, in every drop of his blood, and in every organ of his body. People have great difficulty relating to an abstraction or an invisible force. It must be personalized, and that is why God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, so that we might see him and see what God is like. God has been personalized. Love has been personalized. God so loved the Son that he placed him at the head of all the ages. God so loved him that when he died the very heavens were darkened and the earth trembled under the noonday sun, veiling all nature, while silence in earth and heaven lasted until love had finished his sacrifice upon the cross. That was love so divine, so wonderful, so awful that it could only have been possible for God in Christ to have revealed it at all. This love is the love which God imparts to us. This same love that was in Him must be in us. The sons of God must be the sons of love.
Go and learn what that means, and the hope of sonship will gleam brightly in your soul. Some time ago I read a story designed to illustrate the meaning of love. It touched me deeply, and perhaps it will help you. It was a story of an incident that took place in mid-19th century Russia. A Russian nobleman, accompanied by his faithful servant for many years, was making his way home across the frozen steppes of Russia in a dog sled. They had traveled many, many years, miles across the barren wastes and were now but twenty or so miles from home, when the servant spied something that indeed brought great terror to his heart. About a mile or two behind them, they could make out the form of a huge pack of wolves that had scented them and was now descending upon them. They gave the reins to the dogs, cracked their whips, and shouted whatever the Russian equivalent of mush is. The dogs strained their muscles and tried to go faster. Yet irresistibly, the wolf pack closed the gap until finally there were only a hundred or so yards behind them. Then only fifty. Then only ten. Then five. Their red eyes glowed like coals of fire, and their large yellow fangs were visible. The growling deep within their throats and the panting noises of their breathing could be heard as they drew closer and closer. There was no hope. There was no place of escape. Suddenly, unexpectedly, the servant threw himself off backward from the dog sled with predictable results. The onrushing pack converged and stopped tearing the servant to pieces while his master escaped. I thought to myself, what a wonderful illustration of love. But upon more mature reflection, I realized that it only vaguely glimpsed the real meaning of love. It hardly touched the fringe of its garment. Ah, it would have come much closer if the nobleman had thrown himself off for the servant. Quote, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 A brother in Christ has shared the following experience with us. Quote, Shortly after I became a Christian, I recalled a story that was in all of the news, including a picture on the front cover of Life magazine. It was the story about five young men from America that had gone to Ecuador to try to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians, supposedly the most primitive people on the face of the earth. No one had ever made contact with them and lived. They killed everyone that came within their domain. They had no contact with the civilized world. They were a Stone Age type people. These five young men determined that they were going to bring them the gospel of Christ. They laid their plans carefully. They lowered presents into the midst of the villages from their circling plains. Finally, months later, they landed their plane on the beach of a river that flowed nearby, and there made some initial contacts. The people seemed remarkably friendly. Then suddenly, unexpectedly, without warning, a group of these warriors thrust out of the jungle with eight-foot spears in their hands and plunged them through the bodies of these five young men, each of whom was armed, yet none of whom used his weapon. Some years later, the father of one of these men spoke at a local hotel. He was a great hulk of a man, about 6'4", 240 or 50 pounds. He said that when he had heard what these savages had done to his son, 
he boarded a plane in Chicago and flew to Quito, Ecuador, where he got a train and went into the jungle as far as he could. With a group of guides, he made his way into that jungle village. He found the particular Indian that plunged the spear into the body of his son. He grasped this man's arms and said to him, In the name of Jesus, I love you. I remember that I just about went through the floor when he said that. I thought, ah, this is love. End quote. Truly this was a manifestation of the love of our Heavenly Father. The sons of God must preeminently be the sons of love. For God so loved the world, and so will all who are called to sonship. Small wonder, then, that the glorious message of the reconciliation of all things is sweeping like a giant tidal wave through the ranks of those who treasure the beautiful hope of sonship to God. It could not be otherwise. Only those who are possessed with the spirit of infinite and omnipotent love shall be able to minister on the level that will persevere through all obstacles and all ages until all creation is reconciled unto God and delivered from the realm of death. I do not hesitate to tell you that those who fight against the tri ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ, those who wage war against the salvation of all men for whom Christ died, those who set themselves up as a prosecutor and plead before us and God and His Word for the eternal damnation of the billions of helpless souls who had lived and died like beasts upon this darkened planet are not the sons of God at all. They are the devil's advocate. They plead not for Calvary's cause, but for Satan, demanding that he will allow, be allowed to keep and imprison and torture forever all those whom he had gained through subterfuge. These are not the sons of God, who is omnipotent love. They are the offspring of a weird, distorted notion of justice, and they will never reign as sons of God in his glorious, redeeming kingdom of life and light and love. Love your enemies. While living here on earth, our Lord was extremely kind. He picked up little children and blessed them. He healed all who were suffering with pain. While relatives were weeping over dead loved ones, he raised four of them to life again. The Savior of all men said to that woman caught in adultery, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. John 8.11 his kindness made an evangelist out of that wicked woman at the well, John 4.29. Because Jesus really loved the helpless, weak creatures whom he had created, he wept over them, prayed for them, and taught them continually. Except those religious Pharisees, Jesus never spoke one cross word to the unconverted masses. He was always tender and kind in, a hall, in all his dealings with men. His approach to them was very gentle, delicate, and considerate. Surely then we are safer in his hands than anywhere else. The things he has in store for every one of us are far greater than we could plan for ourselves. Does God expect his sons to be better than himself? In Luke 6.35-36 we read, But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again and your re reward shall be great, and ye shall be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. End quote. 
In this instance, Jesus plainly says that if we desire to be the sons of the Most High, we must be merciful as He is merciful. The highest is merciful to all. The question follows, why should the highest be merciful to the evil and to the unthankful? The answer is clear, that the evil one and the unthankful one may come to know the mercy and goodness of God. They would never know that mercy in any other way. If Jesus teaches us we are to be kind to those who misuse us, reproach us, curse us, and make themselves our enemies, then what kind of a God and Father would he be whose words Jesus taught us, who would hate his enemies and cast them into merciless eternal torment to be burned forever? If such a thing were to be, then God would require us to be better than himself. Jesus teaches us that we are to be merciful and kind. Do we then have a Father whose nature is entirely opposite to ours? Impossible. The sons of God are sent, as was the Son, to reveal the nature of our Father to all. If we see a God who loves only those that love Him, then we have a very small and fickle God indeed. But Jesus taught us the principles of the kingdom of God. Quote, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which spitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the sons of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. And if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans do the same? Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.43-48 Are we to suppose that God requires us to behave in one way toward the unrighteous, while his own disposition toward them is exactly the opposite? Are we to believe that our Father commands us to be merciful, to love our enemy, bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us, and pray for them that persecute us, while he banishes his enemies to everlasting damnation, torturing endlessly those that curse him, meet out eternal vengeance upon those that hate him, and shutting out all mercy for those who persecute him? What nonsense! What horrible blasphemy! Knowing the Real Jesus A dear brother in Christ has penned these valuable words of admonition. Quote, the opinions we form by hearing about people are usually found to be wrong after we have come to know them personally. This is also true concerning God. When you come to know Him, you will find Him very unlike the description given by theologians. You will come to know that much that they teach is only rubbish because it is contrary to the nature of God. It certainly was so with the Jewish theologians and the doctors of the law. When Jesus came, he smashed their theories to bits and tore the robes of their ecclesiasticism to ribbons. He ate with sinners, cast the devil out of the Syrophoenician, let a sinful woman of the street wash his feet, forgave a thief, healed on the Sabbath, ate with unwashed hands, called the best religionists of his days liars, hypocrites, serpents, children of the devil, whited sepulchers, and a generation of snakes. 
They thought they knew God, but they didn't. He was more pleased with the sincerity of sinners than with the rituals of scribes and Pharisees. When you come to know him, you will find that it is the same now as it was then. Furthermore, to know him who is truth empowers one to immediately recognize all that is error. The more you come to know Christ, the more you come to recognize the flagrant error of so much that is taught in the name of truth. If the doctrines that men tried so hard to prove run contrary to the very nature of Christ, then know that all that is contrary to his gracious spirit is error. For years without number, the evangelicals in their missionary fever have taught that all heathen men will be condemned forever to groan in eternal flames in unremitting torment because they did not accept Christ, their ignorance of his existence being no excuse whatever. I have no hesitation whatever in calling this a lie, because everything about it is contrary to the very nature of the blessed Christ I know. It is contrary to his love, contrary to his kindness and mercy, contrary to his foreknowledge, contrary to his immutable wisdom, and contrary to his great and all-inclusive redemption, of which it is stated that as in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I care not how many wonderful acts of God you see or bear witness to, you will always remain a spiritual babe, living for and lusting after outward things, until your spirit is awakened to grasp the eternal, immutable purposes of God. Sadly, we confess that the church system is filled today, as in the past centuries, with those shallow souls who praise the excitement the revival meetings, the physical healings, baptisms, seminars, building programs, and acts without number, but who know not God's ways. Tell such super-spirituals that God had a purpose in the fall of mankind, and they will brand you as a fanatic or a false prophet from the pit. Tell them that it is God's purpose to reconcile all things unto himself, and they will begin their name-calling and put the worst possible interpretation upon all you say. If you preach that 99 out of 100 of God's creation will burn in e- torment eternally, they will admire you as a man of truth and understanding. But if you say that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, they will gaze upon your ignorance with the sympathetic understanding generally reserved for lunatics. Like Israel of old, they have seen God's acts, but they have known none of his ways ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, they pride themselves in being hellfire preachers and love to try to dangle people over the flame, hoping to scare them into becoming believers. Well did the Lord say, quote, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Jeremiah 23:21. A man who knows God can answer questions about God because he knows God. I know my wife. We live together, sacrifice together, suffer together, laugh together, love together, pray together, and triumph together some 28 years. I believe I know her fairly well. There are some things that if I I were told that she did them, I would not believe them for one moment, though there would be all manner of circumstantial evidence to support the claims. I would not believe it because I know her. I know how she thinks how she is, her nature, her character, her ways. 
Anyone who dares to proclaim the beautiful truth of the restoration of all men to God and pins people right down to the Word of God is immediately accused by the unthinking masses of teaching heresy and is accused of teaching doctrines which give the sinner nothing to flee from, no reason for accepting salvation. Such thoughtlessness. These poor simple folk are merely admitting in this that they themselves have never yet had a revelation of the unbounding love of God. They are but admitting their shame in upholding a false gospel which would attempt to scare men into God's kingdom. It never has worked. It never will. Christ leads and draws through love. Sometimes love disciplines and breaks, but it does not play games by scaring people into God. Fear is not the instrument of God to bring men unto himself. If fear of hell were a legitimate tool in turning men to God, we should expect to find that the community where the flames of hell were the stock argument of the preachers to woo men from sin would be noted for its spirituality and holiness of life. As one has written, quote, Witness then the Roman Catholic Church in its most prosperous times in the Dark Ages, holding over its adherents a ceaseless threat of purgatory and hell, and fattening on the proceeds from the pockets of her poor hunted sheep. Was there such a striking scene of righteousness then? Then a Luther should not be needed. Fear is the weapon of man and of law. Love is the all-conquering scepter of God. Quote, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. It is love, not fear, that has bound those of us who love the Lord as willing captives to his chariot wheels. Love that does not spoil, but lures and conquers. Love that, while it loves the sinner, hates his sin. Love that dis disciplines with unstinting hands, that the chastened may at last be a partaker of his holiness. This love is the power that has overcome men so far, and that is destined to do its perfect work till God is all in all. A. E. Saxby And instead of preaching a false gospel to sinners, instead of holding up before them fancied horrors which they may escape, the true gospel tells them of the unsearchable riches of Christ, of the glory of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The sinner misses nothing by accepting Christ, nothing but the horrible fruit of unrighteousness, the terrible wages of sin. He does cease to be a degraded mortal under the curse of sin and death and becomes a child of God. Who wants to remain a faltering mortal when one can be translated into the highest realm of all infinity, when one may become the very same manner of being as the one who created the worlds? How men struggle and strive and suffer here to obtain ownership of a mere particle of this little speck of dust known as our sin-cursed earth. How they sacrifice for a mere shelter for these sin-sick bodies, which must be left behind. Friends, I own a world, maybe a whole galaxy of worlds, for my Lord and Savior owns the universe. He is heir of all things, Hebrews 1-2. And we are joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him. Romans 8.17 Who wants to fritter away time and energy on this passing shadow which is earth, 
when such eternal and fadeless wealth and position and glory and power may be gained by merely coming into an experiential knowledge of the abounding love of God. Oh, that all men might learn God's one and only eternal everlasting gospel, the gospel of love, and then preach it and be it. Love alone can draw all men to Calvary's crimson fountain. Only a Calvary love can transform a world gone mad and revive a sleeping church obsessed with her deliriums into a thing of beauty and praise and usefulness. And anyone who is lifting up to a lost and dying world anything or anyone other than Jesus and his wonderful love is simply living a wasted life. The love of God must be lifted up in us. The sons of God are the sons of love. For God is love.